Well, good morning, and thank you again for joining us today. The story is told about a couple that lived in Vermont. They decided that they wanted to take a vacation down in Miami Beach. It had been a particularly brutal winter that year, and so they were looking forward to just relaxing in a warm climate. Uh, the husband, though, was going to go down a couple days earlier because his wife had a business trip in Minneapolis. And so he went out to the airport, and when he got to the gate, he discovered that the flight had been overbooked, that there wasn't a seat for him. And so he asked if he could speak with a supervisor, and he made an appeal to the supervisor to somehow get on that plane, but the answer was no. And so he ended up flying the next day. When he arrived in Miami Beach, he discovered that it was in the midst of a, a heat wave. In fact, it was as hot down there as it had been cold up in Vermont. As he checked into his hotel room, he was handed a little slip by the clerk there who said that his wife had called and it was a little note indicating that she was gonna join him tomorrow as they had agreed. Now, the man was so hot though, he wanted to jump into the pool as soon as possible. He went up to his room, jumped into his suit, and then he thought, well, maybe I should, I should send an email to my wife and let her know that I've arrived safely and that I'm expecting her tomorrow. And so he fired off that email. Unfortunately, in his hurry, he got the address wrong on the email. And instead of going to his wife, his email ended up being received by this elderly preacher's wife whose husband had died the day before. When she saw this email, she suddenly screamed, this grieving widow screamed and fainted and family members came in to see what was wrong and this was the message on the screen. Dearest wife, departed yesterday as you know, just now got checked in. Some confusion at the gate. Appeal was denied. Received confirmation of your arrival tomorrow, signed your loving husband. P.S. Things are not as we thought. You're going to be surprised at just how hot it is down here. The thought of this grieving widow getting this message, thinking that it's from her husband who died the day before, informing her that she's going to join him the next day in a hot place is kind of a humorous story, but the truth behind the story is not quite as humorous. Today I'd like to talk about the subjects of heaven and hell. Now this might seem like an odd way to end our series on angels and demons, but originally we even thought about naming this series The Unseen World. And part of the reason I wanted to talk about this particular subject as we wrap things up is because the place called hell was a place that was originally created not for people, but for the devil and his angels. Now I think people will end up there, but this was not the reason God originally created it. Jesus talked about that in Matthew 25 and verse 41. He said, and he's referring to himself coming as a king, then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus was describing a judgment day where he sorted some on the right and some on his left, and he's telling some that they are to depart from him they're described as being ones who are cursed and they're being taken to a place that's described as having eternal fire. Now, this is a difficult section, subject in the Bible, this whole subject of hell and eternal judgment. And I realize that a lot of people struggle even to believe that such a place exists. Not long ago, there was a, a Pew Research poll that concluded that 72% of Americans believe in a literal place called heaven. 
But when it comes to hell, only 58% believe in a literal hell. In other words, almost half of Americans do not believe that the place exists, and I can understand why. When we're talking about such a place, it raises a number of important questions that I think we need to wrestle through. For example, there's the question, how could a loving God send anyone to a place like that? I mean, we believe that God is love at his very essence, and so how could a God who is love create a place like hell where people would spend an eternity? It's really hard for us to grab a hold of that. Or another question that people ask is this, if God told us to forgive our enemies, how is it that he's not gonna forgive some of his, namely the devil and angels, and of course others that might end up in this place? And the question I've heard most often is this, if faith in Jesus Christ is the only way that a person knows they'll go to heaven, what about those who haven't heard? Is it fair that someone like that would not end up in heaven? Now, I want to admit up front that these are not easy questions. I think these are difficult questions. And I don't think that the answers are real easy, although we'll be touching on some of those in just a moment. Today, though, as I wrap up this series on angels and demons, I'd like to end the way I started. If you were with me the first week of this series, I began by asking seven questions related to angels and demons. Well, this morning, I'd like to ask seven questions related to the subjects of heaven and hell, and I want to make an attempt at answering those questions. <clears throat> the first one is this, where should we get our beliefs concerning heaven and hell? And I think this is a good question to ask right at the front here, because people get their perspectives on this subject from a variety of different places. There's some people, for example, that, that think that their own opinion is the thing that should weigh the most, that they reason through this idea of a heaven and this idea of a hell, and they arrive at a certain conclusion. And so there are just a lot of people that are trusting in their own opinion, which I find to be kind of a dangerous thing. Because God has said in the Old Testament, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. God is infinitely greater, more loving, more just, more righteous than we know. And his opinion is the one that I think needs to count but a lot of people are trusting in their own opinion. Other people are turning to church history or they're looking at Jewish theology and concluding that there's not a hell. For example, the early church fathers had some disagreement about this and certain authors that write about heaven and hell will, will bring that up, that they debated this, that it wasn't universally accepted in the early church, at least in the second and third centuries, that, that this place of judgment existed. I would argue, though, that the early church wrestled through lots of things early on. That doesn't mean that they didn't arrive at the right conclusion. They argued about the Trinity. They talked about which books should be included in the Bible. And I don't believe that we should get our theology from what the early church believed, because it was kind of a mixed bag. And when it comes to Jewish theology, some people have made the point that if you read the Old Testament, you won't come across the word hell. And so they conclude that hell must not exist. If hell is such an important place, why is it not in the Old Testament? But I would argue that such a place is there, even though the word hell doesn't appear. In the Old Testament, often we read about this place called Sheol, which is the place of the dead. It was an indication that people, when they die, they don't just cease to exist, they do continue in some way. And Jesus, of course, talked about that place, Sheol or Hades, the place of the dead that had the two compartments in it. 
But again, we don't get our theology from what Jewish theologians thought, and there are indications in the Old Testament about this eternal judgment. For example, Daniel talked about this in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. He was writing about judgment day, and he said, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to eternal life and some to shame and eternal contempt. Again, many who sleep in the dust of the earth, many who died, will awake some to eternal life, which is what Jesus, of course, offers us, and some to shame and what's called eternal contempt. I want to argue that, again, I think we need to get our theology from what's taught in the pages of the Bible. I could make an argument for why I'm convinced the Bible is the Word of God, starting with the prophecies that are confirmed throughout the pages of the Bible. It's miraculous, the prophecies. And I've talked before about the fact that the Bible is so united as one book, even though it was written by 40-plus authors over 1,600 years of history. I'm convinced it's the word of God and I don't want to take a chance on this that maybe my opinion is wrong or even the church historians got it wrong. I encourage you to go to the pages of the Bible and draw your own conclusions about this. Let me ask a second question though. Is heaven actually in heaven? The answer to that question is kind of yes and no. Uh, When a person dies who's a Christian, I'm convinced that they do indeed go to be with Jesus and it's in a, in a place we call heaven. Uh, Paul talked about this in Philippians 1 and verse 23. He was talking about the fact that he knew he was going to die soon. And he wrote, I have the desire to depart and be with Christ. Elsewhere, he said that absent in the body, in other words, death, means being present with Christ. And so we believe that when somebody passes away who knew Jesus Christ, that they enter into the presence of Christ. But they do not, at that point, get their new and glorified body yet, and this is not their eternal destination. We believe that when Jesus comes back to reign on the earth, all of those who have put their trust in Christ will receive a new and glorified body at that point. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul described this beginning in verse 52. He said, the trumpet will sound, and this again I think is when Jesus returns, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal must be clothed with immortality. We're gonna get a new body. We will become immortal. And that's what happens when Jesus comes back. And then, in terms of a biblical timeline, I think that we're going to reign with Christ for a thousand years and then comes eternity. And I think our eternity is not in heaven. I think sometimes people have this image that heaven is about sitting on a cloud someplace and for all eternity we're playing harps and things like that. This is not what it's about at all. I think our eternity is going to be spent on a brand new earth. In Revelation 21, John wrote about this beginning in verse one. He said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. In a sense, what I think heaven is, at least for eternity, 
is heaven on earth, in a glorified earth. A third question I'd like to raise though is what will eternity be like for believers? Well, in the very next verse, in verse four of Revelation 21, we read this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. I personally think that what this eternity is gonna be like, it's gonna be like this earth only without all the problems. When God created this universe, he created it to be absolutely perfect. But as you know, sin came into the world, Adam and Eve disobeyed God and a curse came upon all of creation. God told Adam, from now on work is gonna be work. It's gonna be hard that when you till the ground, it won't produce like it did before. Women were told that when they give birth to children, it was now gonna be painful. Suddenly there was gonna be a world in which there was thorns and thistles and and poisonous snakes and spiders and, and all kinds of things because all of creation came under this curse. But one day we read that there's gonna be an absolutely new heaven and a new earth. And in some ways, I think in order for us to understand it, it's gonna be like this world without any of the problems No more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death, no more struggles, and yet it'll be perfect. In fact, I think this new earth might be better than it was back in the Garden of Eden. It truly will be heaven on earth. So what will hell be like? I have to admit that I struggle to understand why there are some authors that that suggest that such a place doesn't exist or they suggest Jesus didn't talk about it or the apostles didn't talk about it. Jesus actually talked about the place called hell more than he did about heaven. He describes it a little bit again in Matthew 25, 31 to 34. Let me read the verses beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But then skipping to verse 41, he said, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Again, it's described as being an eternal fire. Now, the word hell is not used here, but this is the place that's being described. And the occupants here are called cursed ones. And I think they're called that because they're still in their sin. They're still under the original curse that came upon all of creation. Now, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus adds some other descriptions to this place. He describes it as a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Continuing in verse 40 of Matthew 13. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it'll be at the end of the age. The son of man man will send out his angels and they will gather from his kingdom everything that causes sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Anyone who has ears should listen. It's describing a place where there's gonna be weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. There's some discussion among theologians about what's the idea behind gnashing of teeth. And it, it, it means one of two things. Either it has the idea that it's gonna be a painful place where people are gnashing their teeth in pain, gritting their teeth in a sense, or else it's a representation of how angry they are being in this place. Jesus also added a different description in Matthew 8, beginning in verse 11. He called it outer darkness. Jesus said, I tell you that many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, some people argue about this because they say, how could there be fire and yet outer, outer darkness? And yet I would argue that this may be a place where God is not. See, God is light. And somehow I think both are possible here. Now, this describes that the sons of the kingdom are being cast out into this place of outer darkness. I think this is a reference to the Jewish nation when they turned on Jesus, when they crucified Jesus. Whatever we know about this place, it is not a pleasant place. Now, some people argue about this concept of a hell because they say, well, in biblical times, there was an actual place called hell. And that is actually correct. The, the word that's used for hell in the Bible is Gehenna. And it's from the Hebrew Valley of Hinnom. And it was a place that was located just south of Jerusalem. And it was a place that basically was a garbage dump, but it was also where, where actually bodies were put. And it was a place that was constantly burning. And so it became a symbol of the eternal judgment to come. The Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible explains it this way. The Greek word Gehenna is used in a number of New Testament texts to designate the fiery place for punishment of sinners and is often translated hell. Gehenna is derived by transliteration from the Hebrew of the Old Testament Valley of Hinnom, a ravine on the south side of Jerusalem. This valley was the center of idolatrous worship in which children were burned by fire as an offering to the heathen god Molech. In the time of King Josiah, it became a place of abomination, polluted by dead men's bones and filth of Jerusalem and by garbage and rubbish dumped there. A fire burned continuously in this valley. It thus became a symbol of unending fires of hell where the lost are consumed in its torment. Again, it's not a pleasant place. And some people say, well, Jesus is saying people are gonna be cast there. But obviously, when Jesus is talking about Gehenna, he's talking, not talking about that literal place. He's talking about a place of future judgment that resembles this place. The fifth question I'd like to ask, and it's a very important question, who will end up in hell? There are different descriptions that are given of people that will end up in this place. Let me list some of them for you. There are ones whose ways are evil. They're described as ones whose ways are evil. There are ones whose names are not in the book of life. There are ones who don't know God. There are ones who didn't respond to the gospel message. There are ones who died in their sin. Now let me talk about each of these. I wanna look at the references where these descriptions are used. First one, ones whose ways are evil. In Revelation 20 and verse 13 we read, then the sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead, all were judged according to their deeds. 
This is kind of interesting, but this shows that the final judgment is based upon our deeds. Now, why are we judged based upon our deeds? Well, I think the reason we're judged based upon our deeds is because our deeds reflect what we are. Jesus once made the point that a tree is known by its fruit. You can tell what kind of tree it is by the fruit. And so, for example, you see an apple growing on a tree and you can conclude that is an apple tree. Now, an apple on a tree does not make it an apple tree. It just reveals the kind of tree it is. In other words, if there were no apples on the tree, it would still be an apple tree. But the moment you see an apple, you can conclude that's the kind of tree it is. Well, the things we do, the sins we commit, those are the things that reveal what we are. We sin because we're sinners. We break God's law because we are law breakers. In Revelation 21 and verse eight, John lists some of the people that will end up in this, this place of fire and death. He said, but the cowards, the unbelievers, the vile murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, this is kind of a scary thought when you look at this list. It says cowards, unbelievers, the vile murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. When I get to the liar part, I realize everybody lies, right? Does that mean that we're all gonna end up in this place? No. Although I would say that apart from Christ, we would. It is what we deserve because of sin in our lives. But I think these descriptions are used in a sense of somebody whose life is characterized by these things. In other words, the way John uses the word liar here doesn't refer to someone who told a lie. It's referring to someone whose very nature is to be a liar. It's someone whose very nature is to be vile or a murderer or sexually immoral or a sorcerer, all these other qualities. But in either case, we're judged based on the fact that there's sin and that reveals what we are. Another group here, names who are not written in the book of life. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14, we read, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And then he writes, and anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This seems pretty clear to me. If someone's name is not in this book of life, that they're gonna end up in this place that we call hell. <clears throat> what exactly is the book of life? Well, there's a, a question about that. Some theologians believe that the moment somebody is born, the moment they have life, their name is written in this book. And then if they do not put their trust in Christ, the name is erased. There's a verse in the book of Revelation that suggests that names can be erased from the book of life. And so it might be that. Others believe that the moment a person puts their trust in Jesus Christ, their name is added to the book of life. In either case, this book is gonna be consulted. These are people who have life. Now, what's encouraging to me is that we can know that our names are in the book of life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one who brought life into this world, and he's the one that instills eternal life. And so we can know that our names are gonna be in this book. Some of the other descriptions of the occupants of this place, they're called ones whose ways are evil, ones whose names aren't in the book of life. They're ones who don't know God, and who don't submit to the gospel message. 
They don't know God. Remember how Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they answer me. One of the descriptions of people in this place, they just don't know God. But also they didn't submit to the gospel. Now Paul talked about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter one. Let me set the context just a little bit. The people in in the city of Thessalonica, which is in modern day Greece, were undergoing great persecution. And, And Paul wrote them to encourage them to say, well, persecution is something we should expect. Don't be surprised by it. But then he went on to say, but one day God will get justice, which I'm encouraged by that. When I see the injustice in this world, I think I'm so glad that one day justice will be served. But Paul wrote, beginning in verse six, in the middle of verse six of 2 Thessalonians 1, it is righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to reward with rest you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels, taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God, that's the first group, and on those who don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. To obey, by the way, in this context means to put yourself under it, to submit yourself to this particular message. And this could be describing the same individuals, by the way, or else different individuals. They're ones who don't know God. They do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse nine, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength in that day when he comes. Paul said one day all things are gonna be made right and some will be cast away from his presence And when will it happen? Well, it says when Jesus is finally revealed in all of his glory. But let's ask another question here. What about children? Or what about those who have never heard? Will they end up going to hell? Well, most theologians are in agreement that children will end up in heaven provided they're of a certain age. And we don't know what that is. A lot of theologians call this the age of accountability. This particular perspective is not just based on wishful thinking. Part of it is based on what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 13, and 14, where we read, then children were brought to him so that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. Then Jesus said, leave the children alone and don't try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven is made up of people like this. Now, Jesus, of course, was likely speaking in spiritual terms, but he might also have been speaking in physical terms. For example, in the, in, when, in the Jewish nation, when a young man grew up, it was when he was 13. He was finally at this age of adult and finally accountable, and many feel that's the case. Now, a stronger case for me in terms of children in heaven is in the example of King David. King David, if you remember, had an affair with Bathsheba, and then he killed her husband. And they had a child, and that child died. And David said about the child, he said, that child can't come back to me, but one day I'll go to him. One day I'll see him again. And David clearly had this idea that one day he would see his child again. What about people, though, that have never heard the gospel? Well, I want to suggest here today that I'm convinced that if a person seeks for God and responds to the revelation that God gives them, he will give them more revelation. In other words, God is able to reach those that are reaching out to him. Throughout the Bible, though, we read that we are, in a sense, without excuse because God has revealed himself to all of creation. Paul wrote in Romans 1, 18 through 20, 
He said, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made so people are without excuse. Do you hear the argument he's making? He's saying people by their actions are suppressing the truth, but the truth is all around them. God has revealed who he is and what he's like through all of creation. A person can look at creation anywhere in the world and conclude there must be a God. And you would not just conclude there's a God, you can learn things about God based on creation. For example, I was driving around the other day and I just noticed how beautiful everything was and I concluded God is beautiful. God is a God of kindness. God is a God of beauty. You can learn things about God. And when people respond to the revelation God gives them, God gives them more. God has revealed himself to people in a variety of different ways, not just through creation. He's revealed himself through the pages of the Bible for those who have access to it. He reveals himself through other Christians. The greatest way he's revealed himself to the world was through his son, Jesus Christ. In either case, though, I think if someone is hungering for God and responds to the revelation they get, God will give them more. And recognize, again, that God is just and God is loving and he's able to save people. When I went to Bible college, I had a friend of mine who told me his story of how he came to faith in Christ. It was quite unique. He was actually on, on drugs at the time. And he saw this, this scene in his mind of a, an open Bible, and it was his mom's Bible, and it was open to John 3.16. And he knew his mom had a Bible downstairs, and so after he saw that, he went downstairs, opened up the Bible, once he found it, to John 3.16, he read the story of Nicodemus and put his trust in Christ. It was very unique. God is able to save people. And I'm confident that he'll do the right thing, especially concerning those who have never heard about him. But the final question, and maybe the most important one for us today, is how can we know for sure we'll go to heaven? And the simple answer is to put our trust in Jesus Christ to be our savior. That's how we get our name in the book of life. Let me read some references that make this point. John wrote in 1 John 5, 11 through 13, and this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. The one who has the son has life. The one who doesn't have the son of God does not have life. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The Greek word for know here means to know experientially, that you might really understand. If you have the son, you have life. And of course, the most famous verse in the Bible is John 3, 16. Let's read 16 through 18, though. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved or delivered through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he's not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Paul wrote about this in Acts 4 or 10 and verse 43. He said, all the prophets testify about him, that through his name, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. That's it. 
You see, this was God's eternal plan from the beginning to send his son to be the savior of the world. God knew that we couldn't save ourselves. God knew we couldn't clean ourselves up enough to get to heaven. And so God sent his son into this world to die in our place and for our sin. It was the justice of God against the sin of the world. You see, a just God has to condemn sin. But what if someone who had never sinned would be willing to take the penalty for the rest of us? That's exactly what happened at the cross. The sinless one took upon himself the sin of the world and he died and was buried. But Jesus rose again from the dead. It shows that God accepted the payment that was made on our behalf. And if we'll put our trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, we have the promise throughout the New Testament that we'll have eternal life through Christ. I'd like to close here just with a prayer. And I want to encourage you that if you today want to put your trust in Jesus, just to, just to express this prayer, it's, it's really not the prayer, but the, the faith behind it. If you acknowledge here today that you know you've sinned against God and you need a savior, a deliverer, and you want to put your trust in Jesus and receive him as your savior, I just encourage you to bow your head and pray something like this. Dear God, I know I've sinned. I, I know I blow it. And I can't fix it. I do believe you sent your son Jesus Christ to come into this world to die in my place and for my sin. And then he rose again from the dead that he defeated both sin and death. Today, I want to put my trust in him. Today, I want to receive him as my savior. Today, I want to claim your promise, God, where you said, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. I pray this in Jesus' name and because of what he did for me. Amen.